sacrifice. That's what this is about right here, this table that we just took of. It's about sacrifice, the body of Christ, the blood, the sacrifice that he gave to us, that he made for us. If I was to describe communion, the Lord's table, in one word, it would be the word sacrifice. And when I hear the word sacrifice, that's what I think of. I think of Jesus and what he gave for us on the cross. And as you look at the word sacrifice in other contexts as well, if you looked up the definition of sacrifice, what it really comes from is out of this. It comes out of the Bible. It comes out of religion in general. It's a very religious word, the word sacrifice. About human sacrifice, animal sacrifice. We see it in the Bible, but we see it other places as well. Making a sacrifice to God or to the gods. But as you think of sacrifice, what do you think of? Because as often words evolve into meaning more, the word sacrifice has evolved to mean more than that. It's used a lot in our everyday language. So when you hear sacrifice, what do you think of? Do you think of the single mom working two jobs to just put food on the table for her kids? We would say that she's making a sacrifice to, to provide for her kids. Kids themselves are sacrifice, aren't they? To have kids. My son, uh, my firstborn son, just turned three months old yesterday. And through the process of being pregnant, we had lots of people come up to us and tell us, it is such a sacrifice to have kids. Your life will change forever. It's wonderful, but it's not easy. It's a big sacrifice. And when they would tell us that, you know, I remember thinking like, oh, I know it'll change my life forever, but, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's not going to change that much. It'll still be easy. Oh, but it has. And it is a big sacrifice. And I'm just getting a little glimpse of it. A lot of you know a lot more about the sacrifice that it, that it brings. And if you've ever talked to me and my wife very much, we, have, we are blessed with such a great kid. He sleeping through the night after two weeks, and I mean, he's always happy, and so we are very blessed, and yet I'm still getting a little bit of that, a little taste of what it means to be a father. I used to come home from work, and I could sit on the couch and just watch TV, relax. Now I come home from work, and I'm handed a wonderful boy, baby boy, and yet this kid, he doesn't want to just like lay there and cuddle with you. He wants to be up, standing up, looking around, having fun, and it's great, and yet I'm losing, I'm, I'm having to sacrifice some of those things I used to enjoy to take care of him. We look at those little sacrifices. Think about that little sacrifice that I'm making with that. A lot of you know more about that. You've had kids growing up, a lot more kids. And yet, there's other sacrifices that people are making in the world. There's men and women from this country that are in other countries serving, sacrificing their lives for their country, for their people. A big sacrifice. I saw a movie a couple months ago, and actually just started reading the book too, um, called Lone Survivor. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but the title itself is kind of a spoiler. In this movie, this book, this story, true story about these men, this Navy SEAL group fighting in Afghanistan, is, is all about sacrifice. It's full of sacrifice. These men that are willing to give their lives in a split second for their friends, willing to give their lives for their fellow soldiers, willing to give their lives for their country. Without even thinking about it, they're willing to sacrifice themselves for one another, for us. That's sacrifice. And so as, I ta- as we talk about sacrifice this morning, I just want to th- you to think about what that picture is in your mind. What does sacrifice mean to you?
And so with that, we're going to go to the story of Esther. And that's exactly what we're going to do today, is we're just going to, I'm just going to tell you guys the story of Esther. So you guys can sit back, relax, and just listen to the story of Esther. Our story starts with many of the Israelites in exile. They're strangers in a foreign country. As we learned about in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's some coming back. There's some headed back to Israel. There's hope, and yet there's so many that are still out there. So many that are still in foreign countries being oppressed in exile. And that's where our story starts. With King Ahasuerus. And he's there, and they're having a feast. They're having a big party. And I can tell you, that I wish our parties were like theirs. Okay, our parties are like maybe a few hours, maybe a whole day. Theirs were like weeks long. So the point we come into the story, they're seven days into this party. And the king is having a good time. He's eaten a lot, and he's probably drank a little too much. And he says, bring me the queen. I want to show everybody how beautiful my queen is. Bring the queen to me. And so the servants go to get the queen. They go to the queen the queen, uh, the king wants you. The, qu- the king has called for you. She says, um, no, I'm not going. And they're kind of like, uh, did I hear you right? Did you say no? She's like, yeah, no one says no to the king. So um, a little scared, they go back to the king to tell him that the queen's not coming. And so they talk to the king. Uh, king, she said no, she's not coming. Once again, he's startled. What do you mean she said no? He's not even sure he knows the meaning of that word. Nobody tells the king no. He's furious. What's going on? He goes to it. He's not even sure what to do. He goes to his advisors. What should I do? I think right about now it would have been good for them to get together with one of those marriage team um, (laughs) couples, uh, get some marriage counseling. But unfortunately, I don't think they were around in that area back then. So he went to his advisors and they said, you need to get rid of her. See, what happens is if our wives see what she's doing, they're going to start to treat us with contempt. They're going to start telling us no. We don't want that to happen. And so you need to get rid of her. And so he does. Queen Vashti is no longer the queen. She's gone. She's out of the picture. Time goes on. The king gets to live single for a little while. Before finally they're like, king, you need, you need to pick a new queen. Okay, we need to have a queen. So he says, okay, fine. Go throughout the city and get all the young, pretty women together and bring them to me. And thus was season one of The Bachelor. <laughs> and so they get these women, these pretty young women together. But there's one that's different than the rest. A young, beautiful Jewish girl named Esther. She's different than the other ones. She's picked to be a part, to be one of the ones that might be chosen to be queen. And as she's picked, she's... She's being raised by her cousin Mordecai. This probably wasn't the best deal for her. It probably wasn't a really exciting time. Okay? This probably wasn't her number one job that she had planned, but she didn't really have a choice. She had to go. So she goes, but with parting words from her cousin, don't tell them that you're a Jew. Don't let them know that you're a Jew. See, the Jews weren't really well liked. It wouldn't have been good for them to know that she was a Jew. So he was telling her to be quiet. Mordecai's worried about her, and so he goes, every day he goes to the gate, to the king's gate, to hear news, try to figure out what's going on with Esther, what's happening with Esther. Trying to get news of of what's happening. For the next 12 months, 
She's prepared. She's pampered. Okay? They spend six months with oil and myrrh and then six months with, with spices and perfumes and stuff. Can you guys imagine taking a, a year to get ready? I mean, I know girls take a long time to get ready, but a year? So they spend a whole year getting her ready to go before the king. Finally, the time has come. These girls are presented before the king, and he chooses his queen. He chooses the next woman to be queen. And you guys all know who it is. It's Esther. Esther is made queen. And around this same time, Mordecai still, every day, going to the gate, trying to hear news. What's going on with Esther? What has happened with Esther? He stumbles upon something else, something he probably wasn't meant to hear. There's a plot on the king's life. A few of his men want to kill the king. They want to overthrow the government. They want to take charge. He hears of this. Oh no, the king's life is in danger. He sends word to Esther. And Esther, in the name of Mordecai, tells the king what happens and it's foiled. The men are killed. The king is safe. And yet nothing is done for Mordecai. But time goes on. Esther is Esther's making herself at home as the new queen. The king is living on. But there's some holes in the administration now. Some of those people they had to get rid of. And so he promotes Haman to be his second-in-command. Haman is the new second-in-command out of this whole empire. And so the king declares that he demands respect. That Haman, when he walks by, people should bow to him. So everywhere he walks, people are bowing to him, except for one person, Mordecai. And after a little while, some of the guards start to notice, hey, why isn't that guy bowing down? What's going on? They go to question him. Mordecai, why aren't you bowing down to Haman? It's one of the laws. You have to bow down to him. Mordecai is trying to think of an, up an excuse really quick, slips and says, I'm a Jew. That's why. Oh, shoot. I shouldn't have said that. You're a Jew. That's why? They go to Haman. Haman, Mordecai won't bow down to you because he's a Jew. Haman is furious. He already doesn't like the Jews, and now this Mordecai is not bowing down to him, not giving him the respect he deserves. He's mad. But he's so mad that it's not good enough for him just to take, out, take it out on Mordecai. Not just to kill Mordecai. He needs to take it out on all the Jews. And so they hatch together a plan. He gets together with his friends, and they come up with a plan of a way that they can get rid of the Jews, Mordecai included. And they wait. They want to wait for the right time to talk to the king. Make sure that their plan goes through well. So finally the time comes. It's a good time to talk to the king. So they go to the king. And you see, if you word it right, any plan sounds good. And so he goes to the king and says, Oh king, did you realize that there's people out there that don't want to follow your laws? King, your laws are righteous. Your laws are best. Your laws are great. And yet there's people out there that don't want to follow them. And those people are the Jews. They don't want to follow your rules. They won't bow down to me. They won't bow down to you and follow your rules. So we need to do something about it. And Haman tells him his plan. On one day coming up, they're going to have free reign on the Jews. They're going to send out letters to all the provinces and alert them that on this day, they can kill the Jews freely. There's no consequences. There's no problems. Because, king, because O King, those people need to be punished for not following your laws. The king says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Why don't you write up a letter? I'll put my seal on it, and it's good. So they write up a letter. The king puts his kingly seal on it. It's the king's word now, and it's sent out to all the provinces, all the cities 
in the empire. And it gets there, and when they read it, the Jews are thrown into confusion. What's going on? Why is this happening to us? Mordecai is distraught. He knows that he had something to do with this. He knows that this was probably part of his fault. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. In the midst of the city, cries out in distress. Esther hears what's going on. She, with, with Mordecai, she tries to, send, tries to send him clothes. Come on, Mordecai, stop doing this. He says, no, do you realize what's happening to our people? He sends her a copy of the letter. And he says to her, Esther, you need to talk to the king. You need to, do, you need to help us. You need to save your people. She says, I can't. She says that I can't go before the king unless I'm called. If I go before the king, I'm breaking the law, and there's one penalty for that law, and the penalty is death. If I go before the king, I will die. I can't do this. Mordecai sends word back and says, Esther, do you really think that you're going to escape this? Do you really think that they won't find out that you're a Jew? You won't. And if you don't do this, another one will come. Someone else will deliver us. But you and your household will be gone. It says, Esther, do you not think that you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, you're not queen because you're pretty. You're not queen because you're smart. You're not queen because you're good at it. You're queen so that you can save your people. That's why you are queen right now. And he says that to her. And as those words ring in her head, Esther's mind has changed. She says, you're right, Mordecai. I will go before the king. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. With reckless abandonment, she's going to risk her life to save her people, even if it means her death. And there's a pretty good chance of that. She says to Mordecai, me and my maidens, we're going we're to fast and pray for three days. Can you do the same? And so they do. They fast and pray for three days. And then she gets ready. She gets all dressed up, looking really pretty, looking really good. And she goes first to the inner court. She's in the inner court. The door to the throne room is right there. She's trembling. What's going to happen? You see, as I watched the Veggie Tales of this when I was a kid, as I, as I learned about this in Sunday school, it always seemed like a 50-50 chance. If you go before the king without your call, if he's in a good mood, he'll, you know, you're good, he'll let you in, you're fine. But if he's in a bad mood, then, you know, you're not and you'll get killed. But it's kind of a 50-50 chance. No, she, no matter what, she was breaking the law going in there. It was against the law for her to go that way. And the penalty for that law was death. The only chance is a slim chance that the king might give you a pardon. Okay? The chance that he might say, wait, no, don't take her away. Um, yeah, she can come before me. More than likely, she was walking to, into her death. She tells the guard to open the door. He looks at her and says, are you sure? She says, yes. Her hands stop trembling. She walks with confidence into that throne room before the king. The king up on his throne looks up. Wow, Esther, it's been a long time. You're beautiful. He holds out his scepter. She's safe. She doesn't have to die now. Now is her chance to save her people. So she goes up to the king, and the king's just blown away by her beauty. He says, Esther, what do you want? 
I will give you anything. Up to half of my kingdom I will give you. And she says, oh, king, nothing would make me happier than if I could make you dinner tonight. Can you and Haman come and have a feast to me that I've prepared? You see, ladies, Esther was smart. She knew that a way to a man's heart was through his stomach. And she knew that that was her best chance. And so the king, yeah, that would be awesome, great. And so they go, they go to this feast with Haman, the king, and the queen. And after the king's eaten, he's happy. Once again, he looks at Esther and is just infatuated with her. Men, are there times in your life where you've looked at your wife and felt that way? Hopefully it still happens, but I know it's been that way for me. I just look at Jill and I'm just like, man, you are beautiful. What do you want? I will give you anything, Jill. (laughs) Up to half of my kingdom. (laughs) My kingdom's not that impressive, but you know. It's the thought that counts. And so that's the way the king's feeling, just infatuated with her. And she says, Oh, king, nothing would make me happier than if I could make dinner for you again tomorrow. Let's do this again tomorrow. Then I'll tell you what I really want, but let's do this again tomorrow. The king, blown away. Is it my birthday or something? Did I admit, you know, this is like the best week of my life. This is great. Haman, oh man, Haman he, he was just, just had a private dinner with the king and queen, and he got invited to one again tomorrow. He's happy. He walks away with a spring in his step. He's having a good week. His, his vengeance will be poured out on the Jews, on his enemies. He's getting, he, not only does he have the king's favor, but he also has the queen's favor now. He's having a good day. He's walking home with a smile on his face. That good day is ruined with one look. That's all it took. He saw Mordecai. Oh, Mordecai. One look at Mordecai ruined his day again. He was reminded of this man that was defiant, that didn't respect him, that didn't bow down to him. And he was reminded of this trouble that that, that Mordecai had caused. So he goes home, starts talking to his friends, starts talking to his wife, telling them about how his day was ruined so easily by Mordecai. And they say, you know what? You should do something about it. You should, you know what, have a gallows built out there and have him hang tomorrow. Go talk to the king tomorrow and have him hanged. You'll get to deal with the rest of the Jews later, but let's get rid of Mordecai right now. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. Haman's happy now. He's energized. Okay, man, tomorrow's going to be a great day. He goes to sleep that night, happy. But the king, the king can't sleep. For one reason or another, he can't sleep. And his Wi-Fi or Netflix must have not been working because he called in a servant to have him read him a book. And he read to him out of the Chronicles of the Kingdom. Not the Chronicles that we find in the Bible here. It was just the deeds, the things that had happened in the kingdom. And as he's reading to him, he comes across when Mordecai saved his life. He comes across the time when Mordecai uncovered the plot and saved the king's life. The king, surprised, forgotten about it, says, what's been done for Mordecai? Has anything been done for him? Servant says, um, no, nothing's been done for him. I'm like, we need to do something for this guy. He says, uh, I need some ideas. Who's, who's here? Is there anyone in the court? He says, oh, Haman just came in. Like, okay, send Haman in. Haman has just come to try to get Mordecai killed. And he comes before the king. And the king says, oh, Haman, what should be done for a man who truly deserves honor from the king? What should be done for a man who has won the king's favor? 
Mordecai's like, well, obviously he's talking about me. I obviously have the king's favor. It's like that, you know, when a mom asks a kid what, what she thinks that a, uh, a boy his age would want for Christmas. Talking to her son, what do you think a boy your age would want for Christmas? Like, well, obviously, talking about me. And so it starts to describe this bike, this awesome bike with, you know, great wheels and handlebars and, and all this stuff. And so he's describing this. So that's what Haman does. Oh, king, um, he should be dressed in the king's robe, have a crown on his head, be strut around the city, proclaimed that he has the king's honor. Okay, this is good, right? He, this is what he wants him to happen to him. The king's kind of like, well, I wasn't anything, thinking anything that big, but I mean, I guess if you're right, uh, go do that for Mordecai. <laughs> Haman's crushed. It's like that kid has just described this perfect present, and mom goes, okay, good, we're going to go get that for your cousin. Or maybe more like, more realistically, for your worst enemy. Hopefully your kids don't have worst enemies, though. So, Haman has to do this. Now he can't tell the king about his plan to kill Mordecai. He has to go honor Mordecai. So he goes, reluctantly, parades Mordecai around the town, proclaiming that he has the king's honor. But this day's not ruined yet. He still gets to have dinner with the king and queen. This can still be redeemed. Eventually, he'll have his vengeance on Mordecai. It'll happen eventually. He just has to be patient. So he goes before, he goes to the king and queen to the feast with them. Once again, the king is full. He's happy. And he says, he says to Esther once again, what do you want? Up to half of my kingdom, I will give you anything. Now's her time. Esther says, King, what if I told you that there was someone that was trying to kill me? What if I told you that there was a man that was trying to kill me and my people, that had a plan to destroy your queen? What would you say about that? The king, infuriated. Who is it? Who is this man? Haman's getting a little nervous. What is she talking about? What's going on? She points That is the man right there. Haman is trying to kill me. He's trying to kill my people. The king is infuriated. Someone is trying to kill his queen. He he walks out in a fury, not even sure what to do. Haman is pleading with Esther on his knees. Esther, what what do I do? Please save me. Um, I'm sorry, you know, just trying to plead for his life. The king walks back in. What's going on in here? Haman, your life is forfeit. Haman, you don't deserve life anymore. And he sends Haman to be executed. Haman's out of the picture, and yet they still have a problem. You see, when the king's word, when it's sealed with the king's seal, and the king has sent something out like that, it can't be reversed. They can't send out another letter that says, just kidding, or disregard the first letter. It has to happen. He can't change his mind. How will they save the Jews? So they come up with a second plan. Okay. They send out another letter that says to the people that on that day, on that day when people can take arms against the Jews, the Jews can take up arms, take up out of the king's armory and defend themselves. They can defend themselves. They can fight for their lives. They're rejoicing. They're happy. The day comes not too long later. And the Jews' enemies are delivered into their hands. And they're saved. They kill thousands of their enemies. God truly has saved them on that day. Because of what Esther did, because of the sacrifice she was willing to make, they were saved. 
And that's the story of Esther. It's a nice story with a gory ending, but it's still nice. But I want to go back to a few of the words that she said. Esther, when she finally decided that it was her time, she was going to go before the king. She said, if I perish, I perish. She was willing to give her life for her people. She was willing to risk her life for her people. How many of you out there have been willing to do that? How many of you have ever said, I'll do that, and if I die, I die? She was willing to do that. And right now, I would love to tell you to be brave like Esther. I would love to tell you to be strong like Esther, to be willing to risk your life like Esther. Ladies, I would love to tell you to follow Esther's example. Guys, I would love to tell you to marry a woman like Esther. But I can't do that. Don't be like Esther. That's not what this story is about right here. That's not what Esther is about. Esther isn't telling us to be like Esther. Esther had flaws. We see some of them in the story. And there's probably a lot of them that they left out. Don't be like Esther. There's one greater than Esther that came. You see, Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't say, if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish. He came to the earth not to risk his life, but to give his life. Jesus died for our sins on that cross. Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. Not just merely risked it, but gave it. When he came to earth, he knew that he was going to die. When he came to earth, he knew what he was doing. There was no turning back. The only way that it could be completed is if he did die, is if he did give his life. And that's what the story of Esther is really about. It's about Jesus and his sacrifice. You see, as we're going through Route 66 right now, all the books of the Bible, it's not about having cool knowledge about each one of the books of the Bible. I don't want you guys to get out of, out of each of these books just you know, head knowledge about, oh, this book's about that. It's not so you can impress your friends with, with knowledge about the whole thing. That's not what it's about. Route 66 is about the gospel. The Bible is about the gospel. You see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's not the gospel. This is the gospel. This is all one story about Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. That's what this whole thing is about, and that's what our lives should be about. Every story in here points towards Christ, to that climax, his death and resurrection, his sacrifice for us. That's what this is about. We get so lost in the pages of this and we forget the main point. We get so lost in our lives and we forget that that's the main point of our lives. Without Jesus' death on the cross, without his resurrection, we have nothing. We are nothing. There's no point to our lives without that. And that's what this is about. That's what Esther's about. That's what our lives are about. Jesus didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish, I perish. And that's what this whole thing is about. But I want to come back to one more saying that, she's, that Mordecai said to her, one more little phrase that he said in there. For such a time as this, For such a time as this, you are here in this church. For such a time as this, you are living in Vancouver, Washington, Battleground, Hawkinson, Ridgefield, wherever you live. For such a time as this, you're coming to this church. You're working wherever you work. You're going to school for such a time as this. You have a purpose. 
God has a purpose for your life. You see, Esther wasn't the queen because she was pretty. It wasn't because she was smart. It wasn't because she was good at it. She was the queen so that she could save her people. So that she could save God's people. For such a time as this, you are here on this earth for a reason. And you have a purpose. What is that purpose in your life? As the worship team comes up, we're going to sing a song now. It's one of my favorite songs. And we've sang it quite a bit in here. It's called Where I Belong. And as I was reading, as I was studying this, Esther, this song came to mind. And yet, when I first thought of it, I'm like, no, that has nothing to do with this. In fact, it's the opposite of what I'm trying to say. But then I realized that it wasn't. And it said it so perfectly. You see, all I know is I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. God did not design me to live here. He designed me to live in a perfect world with him. And that's what I have to look forward to. In the end, in the future, on the new heaven and the new earth, it's going to be so amazing. We can't even comprehend how wonderful it will be. That is my home with Christ, with eternity. This is not my home. And yet, for such a time as this, I am here on this earth for a purpose. There is a war going on. And I heard a quote last weekend that really made me think, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. Victory has been won. On that day 2,000 years ago, Jesus won. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. He conquered evil. The victory has been won. We are fighting from victory. And for such a time as this, this world that we live in, all the destruction, all the sin, all the wrongdoing, all the deceit, for such a time as this, I am here for a purpose. And I'm just beginning to uncover what that purpose is, why God has me at this church right now, why God has me living here. Some of you may know your purpose already, but a lot of you probably don't. For such a time as this, God has put you on this earth for a reason. You're not home yet. This is not where you belong, and yet this is where God has put you. What will you do with that? Dear God, that sacrifice that you gave for us, your death on the cross, God, that is the most important thing in our lives. That's what the Bible is truly about. And God, I pray that every day we will remember that. Every day we will live redeemed lives through your gift. And God, I pray that we would begin to understand why, we're here, why we are here. For such a time as this, you have put all of us on this earth. You put all of us in this church right now to worship you, to hear your message, God. And I pray that we would start to begin to understand what our purpose is. That it's bigger than we think. That it has eternal consequences, God. And I thank you for your sacrifice, and I pray that we would live that way. And as we receive this offering now, God, I pray that we will remember all that you have given us. Your sacrifice, your death, the gift of eternal life is more than enough for me, God. And yet you've given me so much more. And I pray that as, I, as we give back now, we would remember what you did for us on the cross. In your name, amen.